culminate the preaching today with just a, a, a group prayer. I know we have to be cautious of the weather. I know we won't, don't want to hold you here so long that we put you and your family at risk. But thank you for coming today. Thank you for being courageous. We pray angels to protect you and your family on your way home today. Amen. Truly, that's not just uh, spiritual, lingu- spiritual language or lingo today. We really mean that. God's angels to encamp around about you. The book of Hebrews is a verse of scripture that's going to set the precedence for today, perhaps for many weeks to come. In the book of Hebrews today that I'm going to expound upon in just a few minutes. In Hebrews, the 8th chapter, the 6th verse is where I'd like for you to, to turn to today for just creating the context that leads us into the vein of thought that I want to share with you. If you're a visitor, I'm so honored that you chose to come and worship with us here at First Assembly. Members, thank you so much. Adherents, thank you for being here today. You're going to be encouraged by what you hear. If your heart is set today on the knowledge of the Word of God, you're going to be encouraged by what you hear. I believe it's going to stimulate uh, a desire to know the, the Word of God in a greater depth than you have previously known. Hebrews, the eighth chapter, we honor the reading of Scripture by following the ancient practice of Israel when Ezra stood on a raised platform and he unscrolled the Old Testament law. And when he did, all the people stood. So if you would stand up for just a moment, we want to read one verse of Scripture that creates for us the context and the sixth verse here today. Whether you have the Word of God on the, the, in the Bible in this form, whether it's on the screen, whether it's on your phone or your iPad, most importantly that it would be in your heart. And here the writer says, but now hath he, that he is Jesus. He's the unnamed figure in this particular verse of Scripture. Certainly the context reveals it much deeper. He hath obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. The sixth verse here was chosen. I particularly chose this verse to set the context in a study of the book of Hebrews today. As it says here, a more excellent ministry. Those words echo the heart of the author and what he does throughout the entirety of the book that he proves through the scriptures that Jesus and his redemptive role as the Messiah and the Redeemer of mankind, now that he lives in the capacity in which he lives, he lives today as an intercessor for you and I. We'll culminate with greater revelation in a few moments, and it's a more excellent ministry today. Father, bless the reading of the word, bless the preaching of the word, bless the teaching of the word of God and let it open our eyes, our ears and our hearts to understand God, all that you have for us. It's in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you so much. What I'd like to share as we go into this word for a few minutes as a prelude, I'm going to be honest about what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you for the next few weeks into a study of the book of Hebrews Today, for a few minutes, I'd like to go through what I'm going to define as an overview of the book of Hebrews. And now, for some of you, that may not sound that exciting, but I think that if you'll allow us to go further and to deepen our understanding in this particular epistle, 
think you will walk away with as much excitement as I possess about sharing. I pray that as this builds week by week, you will have as much anticipation about hearing as I do about sharing. One of the things that the, this particular... Um, this particular series is going to give us, it's going to be greater in doctrine than oftentimes you see pastors in our culture give us. We are a shallow generation, doctrinally speaking. We've allowed ourselves to be moved primarily based upon our emotions or we're moved on a crisis basis faith. You hear me say that so often. Rather than just being uh, again like the Bereans where the scripture says that they studied the scriptures daily they studied these things, whether or not these things were so. I just believe that if I can take you, and I know that in the brief time that we're together on a Sunday or a Wednesday, cannot be the, the, the culmination or the completion of all of your study. But if I can be the spark, if the Holy Spirit can use me to be that spark that encourages you to let's get into the heart of this word and begin to draw knowledge from it. I believe that as you grow in knowledge, you will create within yourself, the Holy Spirit will create within you, excuse me, a faith and a trust that will help you in every season of life that you're in based upon the knowledge of the Word of God. Remember Solomon said, in all of your getting, get understanding. It's a, it's a prayer that you have to pray. You have to pray, God, open my eye. You hear me say it so often. God, open my eye to see. Open my ear to hear. Open my heart to understand. And these things just don't arbitrarily happen. If you want the knowledge of God, you have to seek the knowledge of God. You have to desire it. And if you desire it, He will give it to you. You can be uneducated. I don't have any Bible training whatsoever. So I understand that I don't oftentimes communicate at an academic level. Certainly many times it's at a practical level. But I believe that the Holy Spirit can take the Word of God and reveal it to me in such a way that I can relate to it and then I can relate it to you. And as we go into this study today, I'm praying that there becomes a depth to our faith and our understanding. One of the things that you have to understand about the book of Hebrews is that the author of this particular epistle is unknown. We can compare the writing and we can compare the, the style of writing. Most scholars reject Paul as the, uh, the actual author of this epistle. Some suggest that it could be Barnabas. There's a pantheon of ideas. Many, one commentary actually concluded that only God knows who wrote the epistle to the book of he or the epistle of Hebrews. I don't know if that's necessarily that important to us today. I think it's more important that we understand the recipients of the epistle. We're here to receive and one of the things that I want you to see is to who was this epistle written to? Who was it written to? The third chapter, the first verse, brings clarification to us concerning who it was written to. The first verse of the third chapter says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. It was written, this epistle was written to believers. And it was written primarily, what most people feel, is that it was written to Jewish believers distinctively. Not necessarily excluding Gentile believers, Certainly that middle wall of partition has been broken down to us and we are one body. But it seems that it was written to Jewish believers, perhaps even Jewish believers in Rome because at the last chapter, the 13th chapter, the, the, the author says, they of Italy salute you. In essence, as is those that were of Italy that were with him wherever he's writing the epistle from, as he's writing to, it's that he's writing to perhaps Jewish believers that are in Rome. 
the context is important for us to extract from the very beginning because if you don't grasp the context of the entirety of the whole book, then as you, as you gain uh, precepts along the way, you can misplace those precepts and you won't put them in their proper place because you have extracted them away from the context. The context of the book seems to be this right here, that the Judaizers and the Jewish Brethren, not the Jewish believers, but the, 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 the men and women of the Jewish faith that had rejected Jesus as the Messiah were putting undue persecution and pressure upon this particular group of Jews that had accepted him as Messiah and they had trusted in him. And so if you study the book of Acts, you'll see that it's a common uh, event that occurs. Many times whenever the Apostle Paul in his missionary journey, when he would go to a Gentile city, most oftentimes he did not go to the marketplace to start preaching. He didn't go to the riverside. He did at Philippi, but for the most part he typically went where there was a synagogue. When he preached the gospel oftentimes there would be Jews that would believe and there would be Gentiles that would believe, but often it would create a, a, a riot often. It was not just a revival. It was like like a competing uh, faction that this would be a particular group of Jews that would believe and they would trust that Jesus was the culmination of all that they had heard and that they had been prepped to receive through the Mosaic law and through Judaism. He was the completion of it. As the Apostle Paul said that the law was our schoolmaster to point us to Christ. But then the Jews that didn't believe would begin to persecute the Jews who did believe. And the epistle seems to, uh, to us that many of these Jewish brothers are now wavering because that pressure began to mount and that persecution and that being ostracized and sometimes even being physically abused began to mount, uh, began to mount in their lives and they're wavering just a little bit. They're wavering. They're being drawn back into Judaism as their source of righteousness. And the writer begins to just expel all of those disbeliefs and begins to drive them out by the light of the Word of God. That's so important because throughout the book, as I was preparing my, uh, for myself and preparing this Word, I discovered at least 13 warnings in the 13 chapters, and that's a minimum. There's more than this. But let me just glean from a few of those real quickly so that you can just kind of get these in your heart. These are warnings that, that are uh, encouraging them to not fall back into this now obsolete way of approaching God. The second chapter, the first verse, they said, lest at any time we should let them slip. I'm just going to read them quickly. The second chapter, the third verse, he said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The third chapter, the twelfth verse, he said, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The fourth chapter, the eleventh verse, he said, labor to enter into that rest. And I know I'm moving quickly, but I just want you to see briefly because of it being an overview today. He said, labor to enter into that rest because if you don't, paraphrase, he said, you will fall after the same example of unbelief. Fifth chapter, 11th verse, you are dull of hearing. He's reproving them. They're no longer hearing the writings and the exhortations of those that are led by the Spirit, but they are falling prey to the, to the lies and the contentions of those. You've got to be careful becoming dull of hearing. Come on, be sensitive to God and the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. The sixth chapter, the 12th verse, don't be slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
the 10th chapter, the 26th verse, is one of the tipping point verses in the whole, uh, the whole book. It says, If you sin willfully after you have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. In essence, what the writer is saying, if you're still looking for an atoning sacrifice, if you're looking for a goat or a bullock or a Passover lamb or a turtle dove or a pigeon, he said, if you're looking for that, there is no more sacrifice that can take away sin. So if you sin willfully thinking, well, we will uh, go to the day of atonement and the high priest uh, in, in, the, in the temple will take the blood of the bullock and the goat on the day of atonement and roll our sins away and, and then our sins will be confessed over the head of the scapegoat and he'll be led outside the city. He said, there's no other sacrifice for sin than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's a powerful word in the 26th. So he's warning them. Then he says, don't cast away your confidence, the 35th verse of the 10th chapter. Chapter 10, verse 38. If any man draw back, my soul has no pleasure in him. He said, lay aside, 12th chapter, first verse, lay aside every weight and the sin that easily besets you. 15th verse, 12th chapter, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. He said then in the 25th verse, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. Are y'all catching hold of this writer? As he's writing these 13 short chapters, in his pen is a passion that as he warns the people, be very careful, you're on the edge. You're on the edge of slipping back into that now obsolete system of approaching God. There's no other way than through Jesus Christ. Chapter 13, verse 9, last verse we read in this context, be not carried away with divers and strange doctrines. How important is it that we become settled in what we believe? How important is it that we know the Word, rooted and grounded, Colossians 1 and 23 says that you be rooted and grounded and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. That's why 2 Timothy 2 and 15 says we study to show ourselves approved unto God. Workmen who need not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. That's why it's not that the truth sets you free. It's that, that you know the truth and then the truth will set you free. And so you have to set your heart as a student to become rooted and grounded in what God says in His Word and begin to know the Word of God and become familiar with these passages. One of the greatest reproofs in all the epistle that I'm not going to necessarily go into today, but just only to reference, He, he, he reproves them because He said, you are at the place when you ought to be a teacher. He said, and you're having to have somebody go back in the very, and teach you the very beginning oracles of God. I heard one pastor, you know, the Apostle Peter years, uh, the Apostle Peter in his epistle referenced that we as newborn babes should desire the sincere milk of the Word of God. And this one particular pastor said this. He said, I don't mind taking the bottle of the milk of the Word of God and putting it into the mouth of a, of a believer. It's necessary. He said, but I sure hate to have to part the whiskers of the mustache to put it in. So there comes that place in our life where there ought to be a growth. There should be a, there should be a development in our faith. We should be maturing. Come on, somebody. Some of the things that we hear about on Sunday morning should not be foreign to us any longer. We should have already gone through a process of educating and teaching ourselves. And you may not be afforded the opportunity to go to a Bible school, that, but that doesn't mean you can't have the knowledge of God. doesn't mean that you can't be uh, found guilty of becoming a student of the Scripture. Now, one thing that's uh, particularly clear in this particular passage is that in this particular book, the, the writer here, throughout the letter, he is showing Jesus Christ in his redemptive role as superior to every component of Judaism. And in the weeks ahead, we'll look a little bit closer at it. 
But remember what I read a moment ago in chapter 8, verse 6, a more excellent ministry. He has a more excellent ministry than every component of, of Judaism. Perhaps Judaism is more familiar in my mind because of our recent trip last year to Israel and it's forced me to study and to know it and to understand it with greater clarity than I have in the past. And the writer here is affirming that Jesus' redemptive role has become a more excellent ministry than anything that you see in all of the Old Testament and the old, all of the Old Covenant. The writer says it's a new and a living way. I love the phrase, a new and a living way. We can approach the Father. He is superior, the writer says, to the angels. See, the law was mediated in the hands of an angel. And the writer says Christ is greater than the angels. He has a name above the name of any angel that's been named. He has a name given. He's greater than the prophets that prophesied about the law. He's greater than Moses, the third chapter and the third verse said. He's greater than Aaron, who was the very first high priest. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the law. He's greater than all the sacrifices. And even the temple itself, even the temple itself that you go, he's writing to these Jewish brethren, that you would go and worship in three times a year according to the requirement of the Mosaic law. Remember what Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. And so he's greater than even the temple or the tabernacle itself. Jesus is superior to every component. And that's the part of the context that you will glean as you study this particular epistle. Listen to some of the words that the, the author uses to reveal to us the superiority of Jesus' ministry. Just see what they do in your spirit. See if they do anything as they did in mine. More honor. More glory. Another day. A great high priest. Not just a high priest but a great high priest. Endless in comparison to those who die, he is now endless. He's unchangeable, uttermost, higher than the heavens, forevermore, more excellent, holiest of all, good things to come, greater and more perfect. How much more? Perfected forever. There's a revelation right there. Perfected forever. A kingdom which cannot be moved. The great shepherd of the sheep. And there's one particular, better. So I studied the word better for just a moment. And I found what it was connected to. That Jesus is just better. He's better than anything that the Old Testament system could provide for us. The writer says that Jesus is better than the angels. He's given us a better hope. He's given us a better testament. He's given us a better covenant. He's given us better promises because we have a better sacrifice. We, he's given us a better and an enduring substance. We have a better country. I love Israel and that trip that we made was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. But how many of you know we got a better country? Are y'all hearing me? I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about our citizenship is in heaven. A better country. He said, we have a, a, better, a better resurrection. Some better thing, the writer says. And then he said this, Jesus' blood speaks better things than that of Abel's. Jesus' redemptive ministry is far superior to anything Judaism has to offer. And so real quickly today, this is an overview. We're going to get to one particular place and then we'll conclude today. 
But the method that the author uses to convince the Hebrew Christians is brief comparisons. Just real quickly. Just a comparison of certain elements of Judaism and then their insufficiency to actually purge the, the worshiper of his or her sins. And he will contrast this, the author, as you begin to read it, you'll begin to see the contrast. He'll take one element of Judaism and he'll contrast it with the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. This element of Judaism would leave you insufficient. It would still, it would only roll your sin away. It would still leave you conscious of your sin. It would still cause you to be sinner. You'd be sin-minded. But the redemptive work of Jesus Christ causes us to be God-conscious. It causes us to know that we're cleansed and we're righteous in Christ Jesus. It's a finished work that Jesus has accomplished. The argument is made by the writer and as he does so he's using the hearer's knowledge of the law and the practices of Judaism. And so for you seated here today in this, in, in this message, hearing this message, it's more difficult for you to understand this entire epistle if you don't possess some measure of the knowledge of the law, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices. But if you do possess some measure of the law, the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices, then you can be convinced that those practices cannot make you perfect unto God. There's always a remembrance of them, the author concludes in the 10th chapter. There's always a remembrance of those sacrifices year after year after year. But this man offered one sacrifice for all sins forever and he is seated down, seated right now at the right hand of the Father awaiting his enemies to be made his footstool. We don't have to live life sin conscious. We can live life God conscious. Come on, somebody. We become aware of this new covenant that's made with better promises because it was made by a more excellent priesthood and it was ratified by a perfect and an eternal sacrifice. For by one offering he hath perfected forever those who are sanctified. It's a new and a living way. And you say, well, pastor, if I study all this out and I begin to be a student of both Judaism and I look at it through the lens of what used to be into what is now and the redemptive person of Christ, what's it going to do inside of me? Let me give you three things real quickly this morning that I believe that this revelation will do inside of you. First of all, it will give you a rest. He is rested today. Let me tell you. Did you know the image of Jesus in the mediating role that he provides for us today that we're going to look at in closing in a few moments? That he is not standing in the presence of God. He's seated in the presence of God. He sat down. The work's completed. That's why his final work on the cross of Calvary was it is finished. It's a completed work. So Jesus now has rested from all his labor. And so the scripture exhorts you and I to do what? Labor to enter into that rest. Labor to enter into that rest. When you understand that there's not anything that you can do to take away your sin debt but to simply trust in what he accomplished at the cross, it'll take away the blindness and the, de and the deceitfulness of religion. Religion puts you in a motion. I always have to do this to be complete. I always have to do this. I always have to do that. But when you understand that he finished the work on the cross, that the blood that was spilled that day was finally sufficient to reach all the way back to the sin of Adam and the all the way, come on, to the last person ever born on this planet and it's now complete, you can rest in your communion with God. You can rest. Number two, you can have a confidence. You can have a confidence in who you are because you are in Christ. 
You can rest in His peace and in His grace. And you're confident in your approach to God. The Bible exhorts us to come boldly into the presence of God. The word boldly in Greek literally means confidently. You can stand confidently because you're not standing in your own effort any longer. You're not in this, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get God to like me. I'm, try, I'm not trying. God loved you. Come on, before you ever born of your mother, God already had formed you. He already knew your end from the beginning. He already knew we had failed. And even before man fell, God had a way of redemption provided. The Bible says Jesus Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. Before Adam ever took the, the fruit from the hand of Eve, God had already foreseen it and God had already provided. He would send his son to die on the cross to pay the atoning sacrifice for the redemption that was necessary through that sin would require a payment. What payment would satisfy it? Only the blood of his son. God loved you and he loved me. You can be confident today. If you're standing in his redemptive work, you are accepted in the beloved today. You're no longer a stranger and a foreigner. You may have been raised in a home where you were belittled, where no one encouraged you, and you may, go through, you may have gone through life up until this time in your life lacking self-confidence. Well, I don't want you to put confidence in yourself, but I want you to know that you can have a confidence that comes from just being in Christ. That you're His. He's purchased you. He loves you. And you have this accessibility to God. So you have this confidence that we have. And thirdly is a discovery, I believe. This is something that you will begin to have happen in your life. Suddenly, once all these things happen to you, as you begin to grow in your knowledge of God, then you'll begin to discover all the powerful things God can do in you and through you. And a whole life begins to evolve of just, man, every day is an adventure with God. Come on, every day is an adventure with God. I think sometimes in the culture in which we live, it's not as adventurous as it once was. Sometimes I think in my mind about to those historic times when, when parts of our, even our nation, you know, like Lewis and Clark and their great expedition out in a canoe, just not even knowing where they're going, just trying to map out or perhaps Columbus as he sailed the Atlantic in search of an unknown or, a, a, you know, a, a new world. And we seem to lack it. Let me tell you, every day you can get up and you can say, God, I'm walking with you. Life is an adventure. God, I want you to show me things I've never seen before. I want you to give me relationships I've never had before. I want you to take me, God, to places I've never been. Come on, somebody. Every day life can be an adventure as you know to, uh, of the grace of God and the covenant that you have. So today in closing, here's what I'm going to do with you today real quickly. What I want to share with you in closing, one component that is revealed to us in the context of of the book of Hebrews and we'll close with this one today for just a few minutes and I'm mindful of the time at 11.40 or quickly if you're texting me or emailing me about the uh, sleet or snow you can wait it's, it, I gotta finish so because I have about five right here in closing I want to talk to you for just a moment about the role that Jesus the, the seat that he sits in today how it can relate, how you can relate to him in this capacity. Throughout the book of Hebrews, you'll begin to discover when you read this that Jesus is your high priest. That's an important thing for you to learn. And you'll have to go back and you'll have to study that Old Testament antiquated means of approaching God because it was a foreshadowing. It was a foreshadowing. And part of the way we'll learn about Melchizedek but I want to just remind you of this today. The, the writer doesn't focus 
on Jesus as the king. We know him as the Lord of lords and the king of kings. We understand that he was of the root, the offspring of David. But the writer focuses almost entirely on the fact that he was our high priest. Hebrews 3 and 1 says, consider the apostle and the high priest of your profession. Did you know later the actual, the writer says, we have a great high priest, the fourth chapter, the 14th verse. He's not just a high priest, he's a great high priest. Okay? Now let me just share with you in in closing, just a minute. Y'all stay with me, hear this. There are many responsibilities of the high priest in ancient Judaism as it related to sacrifices because the high priest was over the house of God. He was actually called the ruler of thy people. He was also called the anointed one. So there's a lot of capacities that the high priest functioned in and certain ministry uh, obligations. But I don't want to look at those for the comparison today. I want to focus on one part of Jesus' more excellent ministry. One part for you today, as, as, and this is it, as it relates to intercession and media, mediation, real quickly. Intercession and mediation. Under the <coughs> Old Testament mechanism of approaching God. Only one man could go into the most holy place, and that was the high priest. And he could only go one time a year. So I got one and two. He could only go one time a year. So secondly, he could only go one time a year. What day was that? The day of of atonement, when he could go behind the veil into the presence of God, where he would stand in front of the Ark of the Covenant, where the law of Moses had been placed inside. The scripture tells us that there was a mercy seat, there were cherubims. Solomon built a temple that had two large cherubims overshadowing the Ark. He would apply the blood of the bullock, the blood of the goat, as part of the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. But when he went in on that day, and on that day only, he would wear the breastplate when he went in before the Lord. On that breastplate were 12 stones. You remember about four weeks ago, we put the picture right here on the screen. On those stones was one of the names of the tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it just went all the way down, you know, through the 12 tribes. And so the the, the book of Exodus, in essence, tells us that the purpose was so that when the high priest went before God, he was bearing, he was carrying near his heart all the people of Israel. What does that say to us today? What does that say to us today? If Jesus is in the presence of God right now, then who's he thinking about? Come on, somebody. Who's on his mind? Come on, aren't we near him? Aren't we like John? You know, when I pray today, I I know this is crazy. I must be much much more ignorant than many of you. I'm just ignorant enough to believe that if John... John the Apostle, John the Beloved, if on the night of Jesus' betrayal, the Bible says that he pillowed his head on his bosom, that he could be close enough to Christ. Uh, So often in my own personal prayer time, I'm just ignorant enough to believe that if John could pillow his head on the chest of Jesus and feel his heartbeat, then I can pillow my head on his chest as well, that I can just snuggle up beside him and be comforted by his presence and know that I am accepted in him. Know that he no wise is going to cast me out, but he's received me. Know that my shortcomings are not insufficient enough to alleviate the grace that he's provided through the cross of Calvary. And so it gives me that confidence that I have in him, and he's my high priest. And I know that today, and I hope that you know that. He thinks about me. You know, I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about my kids. Come on, they're on my mind constantly. And I know there are times when you talk to me, you get tired of hearing. Well, I have a lot of them. It takes me a long time to get to, through each one of them. But you're, did you know you're just on the thoughts of God today through Christ? Hebrews 5 and 2 says this, The high priest can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. He can have compassion on you. 
can have a passion on you. Say, Pastor, are you ignorant? Well, in that sense, I think I understand what he's meaning there. We that are out of the way, he compels us to come near to us, near to him. These scriptures here I'll leave you with today. I just want you to see him in his ministry as the high priest. I want you to think of his ministry as high priest. I want you to think about God, the entity of God. We don't even have a facial that we can, we can't think, no man has seen the face of God. So when I say God, you can't picture a face, can you? Is there anything that comes? Is there any image? When I say the name God, what comes? What do you think of? Do you think Father? Do you think a luminous light? Do you think of a great throne? I don't know. So, but just for a moment, think of what we would call and define as God. And then think of you over here. And then you think of what is it and who is it that pulls us together? Who brought us to God? Who brought us near to the Father? Christ. Does that make sense today? Christ, that's what the high priest, that's who he is. He's in heaven today, right now. He's in heaven where he is. He ever lives, the Bible says, to make intercession for you and I. So read these verses of Scripture in closing. Hebrews 2 and 18 says that he was tempted like we are, but, and so therefore he is able to secure King James English for help. You need help? He can help you, right? What, why does it say he, he was tempted means he was in the flesh. He became a man so he could relate to you so that you wouldn't be able to say, well, he doesn't understand. He understands today. Everything that you have in your life, Christ can relate to and to your situation and he can help you. Number two, he's moved. Chapter 4, verse 15 says that we have a high priest who can, that we don't have a high priest which cannot be touched. In essence, so let's read it the other way is that we have a high priest who is touched. He's moved. He's sensitive to your need. He is sincerely moved by your situation. No matter what it is in life, he is touched by your struggle today. That should encourage you today. Because sometimes we think nobody cares. Have you ever felt that way? Nobody cares. He cares. He does. Even when the church is insensitive, he cares. Hebrews 4 and 16 says, so what do I do? I come boldly to him, confidently. I come confidently to him, knowing that by the means of prayer, I can approach God, I can approach God through Christ, and I'll receive mercy and not judgment. And I'll obtain grace to help me in the time of need that I have in my life. That should encourage you today. Last two scriptures today. Hebrews 7 says this, He is able to save you to the uttermost if you come to God by him. Because chapter 9, verse 24 says, He appears in the presence of God for us. I want you to hear these words as I'm about to lead us into a moment of prayer. I want you to know with a certainty that you have a high priest. You have a high priest that's in the presence of God right now for you. For you. And so even when church seems foreign, and even when the Father seems too far away, I want you to know there's one that's in the presence of God that mediates in the presence of God, intercedes for you. And if you'll just come to him, he will in no wise turn you away. Come on. Back in the days of ancient Jerusalem, think about this for just a moment. Think about this. If you needed the high priest and you were at the very northern part of the nation, they call that Dan, that upper region of the nation was called, given to the tribe of Dan. 
It's on the edge of southern Lebanon today. Mount Hermon is there. We, were, we visited there. It's a long ways from there to Jerusalem. So if you were in a great need in your life and you're like, I just, I just need, to, I need the high priest, I need the counsel, I need the wisdom, you'd have to sojourn up and down hills and valleys through very difficult terrain. And then you'd have to hope to get an appointment with the high priest. And then you'd have to hope that he would be sensitive to your need. Then you'd have to hope that he could understand. Then you'd have to hope that he would not only, would he maybe not even understand, but does he have the power to help? But all that changed when Jesus Christ died on the cross. He's ascended up into the heaven, and there's a gift God gave us. It's called the gift of prayer. And so when you, by Christ, by the name of Jesus, approach God, then what you're doing is wherever you are, wherever you are, in essence, you are ascending into the presence of God. And you're communing with the Father through Christ, and he is interceding for you. What a gift that is to us today. Don't have to get on an airplane, fly across the water. Don't have to try to go up on ancient Mount Moriah. Don't have to, you couldn't even gain access to the Temple Mount today. That's the struggle of the Jewish brothers. They, they want to be so close to God because they think God is confined to that flattened rock where the temple used to, to stand. I shared with you how grieved we were when we went under the Temple Mound area. And there was a little girl, 15 years old, who's practicing the art of Judaism. And she's down there praying in the dark. Uh, uh, it was kind of, uh, you know, the stench of kind of, you know, that rock that has moisture some and just, you know, like being in a cave. And she's down there and she's just rocking back and forth in her pursuit for God. And she's down there because she's trying to get closer to God because she can't go up on top because Islam controls the top because the dome of the rock's there. So she's gone under in this tunnel to try to get to the Holy of Holies. And I so grieve because I know that's an insufficient way. When all you got to do, you can be in your automobile. Come on, somebody. You can be sitting right here. Some go forward and you stay back there. You can ascend into the presence of God. And you can commune with God because of Jesus Christ and his redemptive role. Won't y'all stand up today? It's a powerful revelation that's going to come to us in the days and the weeks ahead. We have a high priest today that's touched by the feeling of your infirmity. He's touched by those feelings. I want to take, ask you to take just a moment right where you are. And I'm going to be very sensitive to time. I'm going to let you out of here because of the...